Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Our guest today is Christian Miller. He's the A.C. Reed Professor of Philosophy at Wake Forest University and director of the Honesty Project. Today, we're discussing his book, Honesty, The Philosophy and Psychology of a Neglected Virtue. Welcome back to the show. It's great to be back with you guys. Thank you so much for having me on again. What does it mean to say that honesty is a neglected virtue? Well, I really have in mind two senses of that. Uh, one is that it's neglected in that in society is not present very much. So uh, it, it's, uh, it's just absence. It's not as, as present as I think we would like it to be. We, we would hope it to be. But I also have another sense in mind, and that's really what I was thinking of when I wrote the book. It's neglected in the minds of scholars, uh, or at least in the publications of scholars, put it that way. So over the last 50 years in my field of philosophy, for instance, there has not been a book written on the topic of honesty. There have only been two articles in all the philosophy journals written on the virtue of honesty, and there has not been one edited volume on it either. So I really have in mind that sense of, look, it's such an interesting, important, and when it's absent, um, significant virtue uh, that why aren't people paying attention to it? Um, we, let's get some people paying more attention to it. Let's get it from being neglected to being front and center in our discussion. Honesty seems pretty clear, though, that if you you tell if you tell lies, you're dishonest, and if you tell the truth, you're honest. And that's what most people seem to think when they think of honesty. So maybe it has there hasn't been a book in fifty years because there isn't that much to write about. Having read your book, I see there's a lot, but uh, but I see there's a lot to write about. But I think a lot of people think that there's not that much to write about. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's very plausible, at least partial explanation for why it's been neglected. Uh, on the surface, it looks like what's there to say? If you're a liar, you're not honest. If you're telling the truth repeatedly over time and in a variety of situations, you are kind of case closed. So what I wanted to in my contribution here with this book is say, that's only part of the story. It's only a very small part of the story about honesty. Actually, honesty is quite a multifaceted virtue. Uh, it, it only pertains in part to truth telling and lying. Uh, there's interesting puzzles and questions and paradoxes that arise. And you could actually spend an entire career trying to plumb the depths of this virtue. So I want to um, get people to pay more attention to it and see how sophisticated and interesting and important it is. And also, ultimately, with the goal of uh, not just as an intellectual exercise, but hopefully to facilitate cultivating this virtue, of which there is a, so a sore lacking in, in our society today. I want to get to some of those complexities. But first, just to clarify, what do you mean by virtue? when you call honesty a virtue? Yeah, uh, so I, there are different theories out there, so I should put my cards on the table. I'm following probably the dominant tradition in Western philosophy, which goes back to Aristotle. So a kind of Aristotelian approach to thinking about virtues. So first of all, virtues are, in, are character traits. They're part of our character. They're um, counterbalanced by vices, which are the opposite of virtues. Uh, virtues are intrinsically good. They're good in and of themselves. Uh, they are dispositions in our minds to think, feel, and act a certain way. So let me expand that out a little bit more. Uh, a virtue leads you to think certain thoughts. I can use another example because we'll talk about honesty in a moment. But um, like a compassionate person is going to be thinking about how important it is to help others. To feel certain things, so a compassionate person is going to be motivated altruistically to help others, and then outwardly to express those thoughts and feelings in behavior. So a compassionate person is going to reliably help people over time and across situations. So to sum it up, I'm thinking of a virtue as something that's intrinsically good, that has a cognitive component to it, a more motivational component to it, which together give rise to outward expressions of behavior, which is admirable behavior. Well, that implies that a person who possesses or demonstrates the virtue of honesty could at least sometimes be dishonest, right? I mean, it doesn't have to, you said it's a disposition, it's not a constant adhering to a sort of deontological rule of honesty. All right. I, so, so I think that's right. Uh, I'm thinking of all virtues as coming in degrees. And the same thing is going to be true of vices. It's not an on-off thing. It's not, not the view that either you're perfectly virtuous or you're not virtuous at all. 
Um, the Stoics, at least some Stoics held that view. I don't think that makes good sense to me. Um, I have a hard time um, uh, thinking about it that way. So I also think that's pretty discouraging. If the only virtue there is is perfect virtue, that's going to be discouraging to me is trying to become virtuous. So instead, what I want to say is virtue comes in degrees, and then there's a kind of cutoff, and then which at which point you're not virtuous anymore. And so you, it's quite compatible for Abraham Lincoln, say, who is our kind of one of our paradigms of virtue, of virtue of honesty in our society, to have on occasion told some lies or cheated or stolen. Um, now, if he did that a lot, that we might question whether he even meets the threshold. But yes, some dishonesty is compatible with having the virtue of honesty. If honesty or any other virtue is like an internal, it's a trait, and it's a, as you said, like a disposition and motivations and these other things that are inside of us, then does that mean that the external is just a sign of that? Or is it is the external act related to that? And I guess what I mean is like, can you be a dishonest person without ever actually lying to people or like an honest person, maybe that one's harder, but like, do you actually have to, can you be internally dishonest without being externally dishonest? Yes, 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 you can. Uh, so I do think of the behavior as primarily just an expression of what's going on inside. Uh, so what's, it was crucial to virtue is what's inside. Uh, that, that's an objective matter. So internal to our psychology, either we have these virtues or we don't. It's hard to know that about other people. What you have to go on is usually just the, the behavior. So it's hard to peer into someone's mind to see what's going on in there. But what's going on in there is the crucial thing about virtue. Now, in your case, you were thinking, is it possible for someone to be dishonest internally in their mind, but not display that very often? And I think absolutely. Uh, clever, dishonest people would actually be like that, um, in at least interpersonally. What do I mean? Well, it's not usually in your self-interest to display dishonest behavior around others. Depends on who they are, of course. But, you know, at the workplace, it's probably not a good idea to be walking out the door carrying a bunch of office supplies in front of everyone else. Um, you know, in a, in a marriage, it's probably not a good idea to blatantly lie about things to your significant other. So uh, it's rather the kind of thing where you might want to portray a positive, honest image interpersonally, if that's to your benefit, and only display that dishonest behavior when you think you can get away with it and not get caught. So you'd be strategic about when you display it or not. In your book, you break down honesty into components. Uh, when I'd like to ask you what those components are, but I also like to, when you're doing that, are you doing a sort of sociological analysis of of the way people use the term, or are you doing a more metaphysical analysis about what the virtue actually means? And then what are those components? Yep. Yep. So let me give you the components and I'll, I'll answer the other part too. Um, so what I, when we're thinking about components here, I'm thinking about uh, what does honesty pertain to? What does it range over? What kinds of moral behavior does it govern? And I say it's very broad in scope. It covers a lot of moral ground maybe more so than, than other, many other virtues do. And this is underappreciated. So I think, of course, honesty has to do with lying. Now, preventing lying. Let's assume that I'm saying, when I say that. Um, and that's, that's, that's where we go to first. That's our, like, our starting point. But it doesn't end there. It also has to do with misleading. When you mislead others verbally, you actually say something true, but in order to try and get them to arrive at a false conclusion... Um, you mislead people about what you were doing last night at the bar, or, um, you know, uh, other things going on in your life. It could, so it has to do with misleading, lying, cheating, stealing, uh, maybe promise breaking. That's maybe a little bit more controversial. Um, BSing, hypocrisy, self-deception, fraud. Um, it, there's The list is long. That's not ex exhaustive. Now, where did I come up with that list? Um, I, I'm just trying to go off of ordinary intuitions. So it's when, when you ask people, if someone cheats a lot on tests, are they an honest student? People say no. So that signals to me that cheating has something to do with honesty. So it's more probing people's intuitions, including my own intuitions, and saying, um, would you count this person as an honest person if they did this? They say no. 
Okay, well, that must mean that honesty has per pertains to that. So yeah, it's more sociological, you can put it that way, or intuitive, or kind of common sense, ordinary folk thinking about things. How much of this, I, I guess the determining factors of those things are socially determined? So you had, you'd said earlier that, that this honesty is this internal trait and that it's, its status is objective within you. But a lot of the things that you've mentioned, like take stealing. So stealing is taking someone else's property, but there's a lot of disagreement about what counts as property, who owns what. Anyone who's taken a property class in law school knows that we've spent forever trying to come up with all these these rules and it's, you know, we have some consensus, but other places we haven't. It differs between cultures and so on. And so something that might look like stealing to one person doesn't look like stealing to another, but it's being motivated by the same thing inside. Yeah, now that's that's good. And that's a, that's a very tricky question. Um, I'm I'm thinking of this subjectively. Now, this is, might seem like it's confusing, and I'm haven't I just talked about objectively? Now I'm going to subjectively. So I'm going to be thinking of this more based upon what an individual happens to think is stealing or not, um, rather than what objectively the law might say is stealing or not. Um, let me give a couple examples. Let me start with. Uh, not stealing. I think maybe it'd be clear if we started with we shift over to to lying for a moment. Um, if if uh, if I uh, think if I've been raised a certain way to think that the Earth is flat, uh, and that's all I've ever encountered in my life. The people have told me the Earth is flat. That's all the evidence I've ever seen. And one day someone comes up to me and says, I don't know why they would say this, but randomly they say, "What's the shape of the Earth?" If I say the Earth is flat, I'm being honest. That's how I see the world from my perspective, even though it's false. Objectively, my claim is mistaken. Um, if, on the other hand, I get the sense that that's probably not the appropriate thing to say in this context, it might, like make, make people might make fun of me or something, and I say, oh, the, uh, you know what? The earth is round. Everyone believes that. Then I'm actually being dishonest. I'm failing to be honest, even though I'm saying something true. So honesty, on my view, is indexed to how we subjectively view the world. And that's going to carry over to the case of stealing, too. Um, so, you know, if, if we have someone who uh, believes that this notebook belongs to someone else, uh, but needs a notebook and, you know, no one's looking and grabs a notebook, they understand that that's stealing. From their perspective, they think it's stealing. Um, by their lights, uh, they're doing something dishonest. Um, if it's a different kind of case where um, someone for some reason just thinks this this stuff belongs to me, it's mine, um, you're no one else is entitled to it, stealing doesn't rules against stealing don't apply to them, then uh, uh, that's a different matter. Um, they still could be doing something morally wrong, but I'm not sure they're doing something dishonest in that case. Hopefully that got to the, qu the question. So does that answer, is that one way you would answer the, maybe the classic lying conundrum in history of Western philosophy, which is Kant's perfect duty not to lie, in which case his argument was that lying always is wrong because willing lying to be a universal truth negates the existence of uni uh, universal rule, negates the existence of a universal rule. And then the Nazis come to your door and you're hiding Jews in your basement. And the question is, and I think it's pretty clear from Kant that you have to tell the Nazis that there are Jews in your basement. But on your account of virtue and the internal subjective side, can someone get away, not get away, can someone be honest due to their own commitments to protecting life? Uh, it, you know, they So they definitely know that they're telling a lie, but they have other moral virtues that they care about too. So it doesn't really undercut their honesty to lie to the Nazis. Yeah. Great, great example. I'd love to probe that in some detail. So maybe we can have some, some follow-up too. There's so much to say about this. It's such a rich example. Uh, so first with Kant, uh, Kant held the view and he was explicit about this in an essay that uh, lying is always wrong. Uh, that also seems to follow from his different formulations of his moral theory, what's called the formulations of the categorical imperative, uh, the universal law formulation, and the formula of humanity. Those are his two most famous 
uh, theories, and they also seem on initial inspection to prohibit lying. Now, Kant, of course, didn't know about the Nazis. He was earlier than that. But in that very essay, when he talked about lying, he had a parallel example about an axe murderer who was looking for a would-be victim to try and kill that victim. And uh, you had the opportunity to lie to protect the, the would-be victim. They Subsequently, you're right. Uh, this has been uh, adapted into an example involving a Jewish family who you're hiding in a basement um, during World War II. Here comes a Nazi patrol. There's just a routine. It's crucial. It's a routine patrol of the neighborhood. They don't suspect you in particular. They're just going door to door asking, do you know where any Jews are? Do you know where any Jews are? If you say yes, of course, they'll ask follow-up questions, probably leading to the death of you and the family, um, or at least the family. Uh, if you say, no, I don't know where any Jews are, they'll you know, close the door and go to the next house. So Kant seems to say, you got to tell the truth. Overwhelmingly, people think that that's implausible. Students, when I present this in class, no one likes that answer from Kant. Um, they think, yeah, you got to lie in this situation. How does this work with respect to honesty? Um, I, I want to say something a little different from, from the way direction you're going. I want to say uh, dishonest, but all things considered justified to lie. I mean, you hinted at, at that at the end when you talked about other virtues. So honesty is just one virtue among many. And when we're thinking about what is all things considered the best thing to do, we have to kind of take into account all relevant virtues that pertain to the situation. So just with respect to lying and honesty, I think if you said to that Nazi, I don't know where any Jews are, you're both lying because you do. And on my definition of honesty, which has to do with not intentionally distorting the facts, you're failing to be honest. However, um, there are other virtues that come into play here, like compassion. Um, and so compassion would dictate protecting the lives of the Jewish family. Uh, that would, in this case, be more significant of a virtue, more important or more weighty of a virtue than his honesty. And so when you balance those two up against each other, compassion wins, all things considered, tell the lie to the Nazi. There does seem to be, though, something, I mean, maybe like Kant takes it further than most of us would in, you know, in saying you have to tell the truth at all times. But but there is this general sense that his argument that like, look, it would be if we had a general rule that you could lie like whenever that would make the world a lot worse off. It would make more suffering. It would make us all unhappy. Like it wouldn't be a great place. And so we want a world where people are honest even if we have some carve-outs for Nazis. But it seems like if you have that carve-out for Nazi, and the reason that you do is because there are other virtues that matter, compassion and so on, doesn't that open it up to basically everyone thinking it is okay to lie or shade the truth or whatever whenever they think it will be good for the other person? Or in some... Like, doesn't that end up... Kant took it too far in one direction, but doesn't don't we risk kind of devouring honesty if we yeah, go the yeah, other yeah. way? Yeah, we, we, I think we certainly do. Yeah, you're opening up a door, and it's not clear where you stop the slippery slope. Uh, now, let me make a first preliminary comment about Kant. Um, I think this is this is interesting. The argument you're citing from Kant actually can be used to justify on Kantian grounds lying to the Nazi. So you're you're referring both of you have referred to this idea of universal law. Uh, that's Kant's first formulation. You, you're contemplating an action. You imagine, what if everyone did this action? Then you think, um, is that even coherent? Is that, is that possible? And would you want to live in that world? And then you go from there. Well, and I don't know, this next point I'm going to make is not my, original to me. It's original to a philosopher named Christine Korsgaard. She pointed out that um, if you're thinking about not the action of lying in general, but if you're just thinking about the action of lying to a someone intending to murder innocent people like the Nazi. If that's the action you're thinking about and you universalize that, um, imagine in a world in which everyone lied just to would-be murderers about to kill innocent people. Can you conceive of that world? Yeah, I can conceive of that world. Could you will that world? Would you want to live in that world? Yes, I wouldn't want to live in that world. It actually passes. Um, so interestingly enough, she argues that, that Kant's universal law formulation, when carried out properly, does justify lying in these restricted cases. 
which of course it makes a uh, interesting scholarship question. How then could Kant have written an essay saying lying is always wrong? Okay, but uh, that's enough about Kant. Maybe more more than you wanted about Kant. Um, on the general question, there there would be other cases that now come into play. Um, so some of which you might be okay with lying too. So the natural one I, I'm thinking of are white lie cases. Um, so there, of course, the stakes are not nearly the same as the Nazi case, but we're talking about things like, you know, how does the dress look or how does the tie look or how is the dessert or um, this kind of thing. And now you're balancing again, do I tell the truth? Because you don't really like any of that stuff. Um, or uh, do I lie? Well, on what basis? Maybe it's, again, compassion, the well-being of the other person. You want to protect their feelings, not, not uh, or you maybe want to protect the relationship and, and so forth. Many people there, too, are okay with the idea that some lies could be justified. Um, so it wouldn't just have to be the kind of extreme Nazi kind of cases. Uh, but then, of course, now we're, we're just kind of more grist for your mill, because where do we stop at, at that point? Um, and I don't have a good answer there. Um, you could look to different ethical theories. Ethical, different ethical theories will try to give you some kind of guidance. Utilitarianism will give you some guidance. Uh, maybe go back to Kant again. Uh, other theories. I'm not a big fan of thinking that there's just one theory of morality that's going to um, sort out these issues or settle these issues. I'm much more of a fan of thinking we need to go case by case and see what the objective truth is, though, in each case. Not relativism. I'm not saying this opens the door to, well, just because I think um, you know, this other value is more important. That must mean it is. I want to say there's still objective truths, but we have to sort through the details of each case to see whether honesty is outweighed or not. It's interesting, your point about Kant. Uh, even before I read Korsgaard, I wrote a paper on that idea in my Kant class saying you could formulate the categorical imperative as narrowly or generally as you want to, you could say, can does everyone, can I, you will it as universal law that everyone lie to Nazis, which actually, if you do that, then you're just gaming the system and Kant gives very little guidance on how to do that properly, except for doing it with a goodwill. Uh, but maybe that's one reason why we're virtue ethicists. So on the virtue ethicist part, it, I, I agree that we probably can't come up with a general rule, uh, but it seems that the, the rule would be something about weighing things that are actually virtuous. So I'm thinking about, parents lying to children in many instances and how they lie to children. Uh, also thinking about lying to the soldier dying on the battlefield and telling him that, you know, he, he took out the battalion or something, you know, in the last moments to just give him something to. So, but whatever we're going to do, if we're virtue ethicists, we should weigh different virtues against each other uh, in order to come up with a case by case analysis. Yeah, that that's certainly one way to go. Um, so, First on the Kant, what you point to is the the most famous problem for Kant's formulation. It's called the problem of relevant maxims. How do you specify the maxim right? It's a notorious problem. Probably no one's ever solved it adequately. Um, we switch over to a virtue ethics perspective, where for virtue ethics, the starting point of ethical theorizing is what kind of person should I become? Um, what would uh, a virtuous person do? Um, weighing different virtues against each other. And what you've given is one approach to thinking about that. Um, so you're, you're suggesting take this, these two virtues, um, objectively, let's assess their importance, their relative importance, and see which one is weightier and more significant in the moment. Um, I think that's a very reasonable way to go from a virtue ethical perspective and makes a lot of sense. It fits very well with the kind of particularist approach I was suggesting of case by case, the weighing can come out very differently. Uh, it's not the only way that virtue ethicists tend to think about this. So um, on, another prominent approach is to think about what a virtuous person would do in the circumstances. Um, the most probably canonical presentation of virtue ethics in the last 50 years is by a philosopher named Rosalind Hursthouse in her book called On Virtue Ethics. And that is her account of right action. It's, uh, you know, right action is one that is in line with what a virtuous person would do in a circumstance. So would a virtuous person lie to the Nazi? Would a virtuous person, parent, uh, lie to a child and so forth? Um, that just, just suggesting that there are other ways to go too. Is dishonesty just the absence 
of the virtue of honesty, like you you t- you mentioned vices, um, and so is it a distinct thing? And and then I think relatedly, like one of the things that our listeners may li- may remember from Aristotle is like the the mean between extremes. That virtue is the mean between extremes, and so what is honesty the mean between? <laughs> yep, great question, great question. So um, so Aristotle held this famous doctrine of the mean. That for every virtue, there's a vice of excess and a vice of deficiency. And that makes sense, I think, in some cases, like take courage. That was his, his I think, best example. Uh, on the one hand, there's excessive courage. Well, it's not even courage anymore. Maybe it's rashness. On the other hand, there's deficiency. That's cowardice. And so we can kind of make sense there are these two polar opposite vices. Uh, in my view, controversially, and um, feel free to push back against it. I think actually honesty is a counterexample to Aristotle's approach. Uh, because I think in the case of honesty, there is the vice of deficiency, dishonesty. And I'll come back to, that was the first part of your question. But then there's no vice of excess. Uh, what do I mean by that? Uh, so you might think, well, of course there is. There's, there's being too honest. Um, but, and then, and then maybe this just becomes terminological and we don't need to fight about terms here. But how I think about it is something like this. Uh, take an example. You're riding in an elevator uh, to work in your office floor up in the, up in the, the skyscraper. Um, here's in the elevator, someone you barely know, but you like, you know, know him enough to say hello and how's your day going? And he says, hey, I was going fine. How's your day going? And then you answer by rattling off all this detail. Like, well, I got up at six and then I had to go to the bathroom and then I ate this for breakfast and then I did that, da, 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 and I'm not feeling so well, the indigestion, I got to go to the bathroom again. It's like all this stuff. <laughs> There's a sense in which you're being too honest. This is the TMI theory of, <laughs> of, of oversharing, exactly. correctly. <laughs> oversharing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but let's now stipulate that everything you say is true you know, by your lights. So I want to say that there's no failure of honesty there. Um, you're, you're, you're conforming to the norms of honesty. What the failure is, is the failure of tact or discretion. Um, you're not recognizing what is appropriate to share in the social situation and given this, how well you know this other person. So that's just the way I think about it. Again, you can push back against or People can argue about that. Let me uh, speak to the other side, though. The other question was about dishonesty. Uh, I don't want to say that um, dishonesty is just the absence of honesty. Um, that would be like saying a newborn infant is dishonest. You know, a newborn infant doesn't have the virtue of honesty. No, it doesn't have any virtues. They're just not old enough to be even moral agents at all in the first place. So, so they'd have the absence of honesty, but I wouldn't want to say they're dishonest. No, I think dishonesty is an actual full-fledged character trait, just like honesty is. It's a disposition that involves thinking, feeling, expressions of outward action, um, uh, cross-situationally and stably over time, but with a a different orientation, of course, not uh, oriented in a good way like a virtue is, but oriented in a bad way. In this case, it involves a disposition to intentionally distort the facts, at least when you think you can get away with it, and it would be towards to your benefit. Um, So it's a positive psychological disposition. Now, half your book is the turning to the psychology and the empirical side of this. And I want to get into that because it's fascinating stuff. But maybe the way to start that conversation is to ask if we are, it's one thing to explore honesty from a philosophical perspective, like from our armchair, right? But if we're going to start doing empirical work, we have to have ways to measure it. And so how do you go about measuring honesty? Yeah, great, great. Um, and I'm a philosopher. I should caveat everything I say, but I don't have a PhD in psychology. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly open to correction and, and learning more here. Uh, there are different ways to measure any virtue, but let's f- uh, focus on honesty as we have been. Uh, you can, so let me give you kind of a spectrum of different approaches. You can just do pure self reports. You can give people questionnaires and you say, how honest are you? Rate yourself from one to seven, right? Or if you want to do a little bit more nuanced than that, you know, uh, how, you know, do you tell lies frequently? Um, or do you, do you cheat at, you know, 
How often do you cheat on your taxes or something like that? Isn't that like the two doors in Alice in Wonderland, though? Like the, it's the ironic. We've been doing dishonest. this too long. We've been doing this too long as I literally had the exact same thought. This is just like the two doors. <laughs> like, of, he's telling the, the truth. Or, asking yeah. the dishonest person to answer truthfully on a survey seems. Yep, yep, yep. So, uh, so I'm, I'm just. You asked me what the what the range is. What is the measure? I'm not saying whether they're good or bad. I am, you know, I'm not editorializing yet. Um, but it, yeah, I, I would, I, I'm hesitant there. I'm, I'm reticent to go. At least certainly as the only measure going to use. Now it can be strengthened by ha- by combining that with observer reports, so you can have f- friends, significant others, family members fill out a similar survey, but about the target, not about themselves, but about the target. And then you can see how much do those observer reports agree with each other between the observers, and how much do the observer reports agree with what the target says in the self reports, and that gives you a little bit more objectivity. Um, but that's not the only thing you could do. Uh, there, I'll just mention uh, a couple other things. One is you can have people give, this is what it's called experience sampling. Um, five times during the day, their cell phone can be pinged and they can be asked very targeted questions. In the last hour, how many lies have you told? Um, again, it's self-report, but it's not these global self-reports, like how honest of a person are you in general? It's Talk about your behavior in a very short period of time recently that's fresh in your mind. Do that five times a day over the span of a week. Um, another approach is uh, bring someone into the lab and do a kind of laboratory studies of behavior. You know, give them a test and give them an opportunity to cheat if they want to, but they don't have to. And make the, uh, you know, they can cheat and they can get away with it uh, for monetary gain. Let's see if they do it or not. And then the final one would be kind of natural environment where people don't even know they're part of a lab and you covertly observe their behavior and see what they're up to. So there's all whole different ways of doing it. Um, notice none of this will be infallible, um, especially when it comes to trying to discern underlying motivation and what we talked about, that internal structure. You're going to have to try and do the best you can to infer or, you know, get as much evidence as you can to try and probe into the minds of people. So what do we know? Or what do we, see, <laughs> what do we seem to uh, suspect? I, I, you're, you're rightfully, I'm glad you mentioned the replicability crisis. And I mean, so the best we can say with a lot of these psych studies is we seem to suspect uh, something about whether people are honest. Yep. Yeah. Very nice to flag that right from the start. Uh, there are caveats to all this. So first there's, the fact that uh, we tend to have these studies be based in Western countries. Um, we tend to have an overabundance of students in these studies. Uh, we also have, in the last 10 years, been kind of confronted with this replicability crisis where many famous studies, not having anything to do with honesty per se, um, have been re- attempted to be replicated and had failed. So we have to note all these caveats. I also want to note another one specific to honesty, which is that with some components of honesty, we don't even have enough studies to really make any, any confident conclusions. So, and not surprising, like something like stealing. Uh, stealing is going to be harder to study other than with self-reports than maybe some other kinds of uh, behavior are going to be. Having said that, what I did find was that there are lots of studies pertaining to lying and cheating. So that's where I really focused my attention. And then to cut to the chase, we said, well, what do we know? In this ballpark, I want to say, um, I don't want to, there's not one golden study that proves everything any, or anything or everything. Um, but when we start aggregating the studies, we start getting dozens and dozens of cheating studies aggregated together, a, a kind of picture emerges, it kind of paints a picture of our behavior. And I'll give you the, the broad brush strokes of the picture. And then if you want an actual example of a study, let me know. Um, the broad brushstrokes are people tend to behave well in some situations and deplorably in other situations. They tend to cheat in some situations when they can cheat, but in other situations where they can cheat, they tend not to. And so we tend to see a mixed bag of uh, a behavior that doesn't conform to my expectations of an honest person, but also doesn't conform to my expectations of a dishonest person. Uh, maybe I would, if it's okay with you, maybe get helpful to give a, an actual example because that's, you know, that's pretty abstract. Um, so here's a study I like to use by way of illustration. Uh, it has to do with 
students coming into the lab, taking a test with 20 problems, being told that they would be paid 50 cents per correct answer, and then sent to get to work on the test. This is a, uh, a setup that's been used in probably 15 plus, 20 plus studies now. So it's quite, quite uh, uh, popular. Well, what does it have to do with cheating? Well, here's how it goes. In the normal setup, they'll take the test, they'll turn the test to the person in charge, the person in charge will grade it, they'll be paid based upon their objective performance. In one of these studies, uh, they got seven out of 20 correct on average. Again, what does that have to do with cheating? Nothing yet. But then another group of these participants would come into the lab. They would be given the same test, 50 cents per correct answer, but they would be told afterwards, you grade it yourself. And then once you graded the test, destroy all your materials and just tell us how you did. And it was very clear that they could answer whatever they want. Even they could say 20 out of 20 and there would be no questions asked. They would be, be paid uh, $10 in that case. Well, now you have the opportunity to cheat. You don't have to. There's no like, requirement that you cheat. You could just say how you actually did. Or you can inflate it all, all the way up to 20 if you didn't get 20 correct. And since we have a baseline of seven, we know what the, the average performance is. In this particular study I'm thinking of, it was 14. So seven versus 14. That suggests significant cheating. Um, but it does interesting, it doesn't suggest maximal cheating. Um, if you're going to cheat, it's an interesting question. Why not cheat all the way? Why not just say 20? If you're willing to say 14, why not say 20? Get paid more. Um, now, one more wrinkle to it. So that's, that's kind of the disappointing news. That doesn't reflect honesty. But to, to tell the other side of the story, to craft this picture of mixed character, um, there's a third group. And in the third group, they come into the lab, 50 cents per correct answer. Um, they uh, have the shredder opportunity, the shredder being destroy all your materials and just verbally report how well you did. But the one wrinkle now is before they take the test, they set, sign their university's honor code. Uh, so the honor code is, I'm sure familiar to all listeners, but that's a pledge that a university will have to not lie, cheat, or steal, or in any way violate the integrity of, of the, the academic uh, uh, exercise you're about to engage in. So they sign that, then they take the test, then they, they destroy the materials, then they verbally report. And in the study I'm familiar with, cheating disappeared. The average performance was back down to the baseline. And they found that with 50 cents per correct answer, they also found that with $2 per correct answer in, in another variant. Now, that's not what I would expect of a dishonest person. I would expect a dishonest person to sign the honor code as a formality. Again, like we talked about earlier, making a good impression on others, looking like you're a virtuous person, and then just go ahead and cheat. You get the best of both worlds, right? Um, but that's not what happened. So... That's a microcosm of the larger picture of mixed character that I think emerges from this lecture. Does this then play into the sense that we have that, say, like certain professions are more or less honest than others? That if, if like our environment and priming effects and all these things have an impact and different professions have different peers and different, you know, internal practices and so on, like, so we tend to think that all politicians are crooks. And it does seem like, the, you know, the evidence does seem that we have lots of instances of them lying. But the question is, like, is there a reason to think that there's something internal to that that's making people that or that professions or whatever might attract certain kinds? Like if, if virtue is more stable character trait, then certain professions might attract honest people or certain professions might not. Or that this is just... The same as like when you buy a red car, suddenly you see red cars everywhere. Like we're just noticing it in certain professions. Yeah. Now this is going to be going back to the armchair speculation for me. So I don't, I don't have data or kind of evidence to, to cite here. So let me just engage in some speculation. Uh, I, so there's one question, is this intrinsic versus is this just um, more common in some professions than other? I would doubt that it's that say politics is intrinsically dishonest. Uh, or uh, is such that one, in order to succeed in politics, has to be a dishonest person, or one can, one, it's impossible to be an honest person because we know counterexamples. Um, so we Abraham Lincoln being a, a, a noteworthy counterexample to that. So I I would probably generalize that across the board and say 
I don't know of any profession where it's just kind of intrinsic to it. Even something like being a poker player, which you might think of, in order to be a successful poker player, you've got to bluff and you've got to lie and deceive and so forth. But I don't, we could talk about this at another, another time, but I don't think that, that you're actually being dishonest because that's a case where the norms of honesty are suspended. Um, now, having said that, are there some that are more conducive to honesty or the reverse, more conducive to dishonesty than others? Yes. I mean, that seems to, to be clear, clearly the case um, with politics being on, on one end of the spectrum. Uh, what seems to matter, one thing that seems to matter here a lot, and this is a lesson from what we've been talking about in the last 10 minutes, is uh, the environmental and situational factors around us. Um, what kind of incentives are in place? And what kind of reward structures are in place? What kind of role models are in place? Um, if, if you see, and this generalizes for any profession, if you see lots of other people in your profession being dishonest, it's very hard for you to resist the temptation to join them because you're going to see, you're, you're going to think I'm going to be falling behind. If I don't join doing what they do, I'm going to be at a disadvantage. I think about this a lot in the case of education with my students. If they see lots of uh, other students in the class cheating and getting ahead with it, it's going to be very hard for them to stick to their, their moral guns and, and their conscience and, and, and resist as well. So because of environmental and situational pressures, there's going to be, in some jobs, more incentive to uh, be dishonest and cut corners than there will be in others. That's, that's how I would think about and it. And even aside from jobs, it, it could be reasonable to say just almost a societal-wide level, you could have different levels of honesty. And, and that could be a little different than other virtues uh, because you know, let's take a society that is lower in compassion. People are generally not as compassionate, but an individual person uh, can still be compassionate and, and gain from being compassionate by helping someone out. But honesty is like a more of a two-way game where you say, well, everyone is now lying. I think I think about, you know, maybe an Eastern Bloc country in the Soviet era or, you know, so the Soviet Union saying, or or North Korea saying, you know, to get ahead, you can you to eat, you have to lie. Uh, or be corrupt in some way or violate some other part of honesty. And so there you could definitely see a culture kind of break down and get to the point where no, no honesty or dishonesty is rampant. Yeah, I think that's right. And there are some, I'm not a specialist in this, but there are some actual societal measures of corruption and societal measures of dishonesty tracking country by country, uh, how our different countries are doing. Uh, and yeah, I think you're quite right to see lower honesty is going to be tied to all kinds of other things um, to the point where at some point that society will start to break down and, and not, not function. Why? Well, honesty is, is an intrinsically valuable thing. It's a really good thing to have. And it's also instrumentally linked to many other good things like trust. Um, so if, you, if, if honesty breaks down, trust is going to break down. And cooperation and other, um, you know, respect for others and uh, valuing people's dignity. And all these things are, are linked to, to honesty as well. And they're going to break down. What's going to happen to a society where those things break down? I mean, that's going to be a, a tough place to live in. Um, yeah. So I think, I think you're right. As a general point, uh, I agree with you. What role, if any, does, I guess, domain knowledge and rationalization play in the story? And what I mean is, so I was having a conversation with a professor I know on Twitter who had remarked recently that so many of her colleagues, like so many professors are kind of trained in spotting issues of privilege in society. But then when it comes to professors at like top tier, tenured professors at top tier universities who have a tremendous amount of privilege compared to like at lower tier universities or non-tenured, but they, they tend to not like recognize that as, and I've also heard Maybe this is apocryphal, but there's like studies of you put books or food out on an honor system at like an academic conference and conferences of like moral philosophers. They tend to take a lot of stuff more than other groups and and how much that might just be like because they've got so much training in this, they're really good at telling themselves, well, what I'm doing isn't actually, you know, privilege or it isn't actually dishonesty. They have like the tools to talk their way out of it. Yep. Yep. Great question. So let me make a quick comment on that last point you made. And then let me tell a little bit of a longer story about 
how um, rationalization and self-deception might might play a role here. Uh, so your what you reported was, is is pretty accurate. Eric Schwitzgabel, uh, one of my favorite philosophers in, in in the world today, teaches at University of California Riverside, has done all these interesting studies of academics and philosophers in particular, and then moral philosophers in more more specifically to measure how good or bad they are. And he finds in broad strokes here, uh, moral philosophers are no better than people who don't study ethics, which is disappointing as a moral philosopher myself. Um, you teach this stuff all the time, and it turns out you're not actually acting any better than anyone else. Um, now, that was, that's an aside. Um, the role of self-deception, I think, we, and rationalization emerges from this empirical literature in a way that piggybacks nicely on what we were just talking about. Um, so why is it that in that study we had, people who are willing to cheat didn't go all the way up to, the, to 20? They stopped around 14. Um, why is it that the honor code was effective in preventing cheating when those people could have cheated anyway and gotten the same um, uh, monetary rewards that they were willing to get without the honor code? Well, there's an emerging, and this is going to be now the, the, the direct answer, a psychological model um, that will generalize far beyond tests to uh, our, our minds in, uh, across the board, which is, goes like this. Um, we do tend to know what's right and wrong about morality, and specifically with, with honesty. We do, we do t think that, you know, in general, cheating is wrong, lying is wrong, um, stealing is wrong, and so forth. But those um, norms aren't always salient in our consciousness. So we can often get seduced by something that looks tempting, um, give us some momentary advantage, short-term advantage, like a financial benefit of getting that money from cheating on the test. But there's a third element that comes into play, uh, a desire to think of ourselves as honest people. Our self-image matters too. And that self-image, we want to preserve that self-image at significant cost. So we will often rationalize and tell ourselves stories so that what we're doing is not really cheating so that we can still think of ourselves as honest people. And that's part of the explanation for why those participants were willing to cheat up to 14 on average, but not go all the way to 20. Because if they went all the way to 20, it's hard to also think of yourself as an honest person that way. But if you just fudge it a little bit, you just bend, I got a couple more, right? then that's not, not as big a deal. I can still think of myself as an honest person. So I'm, 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 I'm manipulating this, storing the facts just a little bit. But then the honor code comes along. And what does that do? That makes our moral values very salient to consciousness, very fresh and immediate. I know now, I'm reminded, I already knew it. I'm reminded that cheating is wrong. Immediately after I take this chest, test, I have this opportunity to cheat. Well, now it's hard to be engaged in self-deception and rationalization. Um, because I've just been thinking about how cheating is wrong. And now I've given this opportunity to cheat. Well, I'm, I'm much more likely to not cheat. So it actually is all bound up with this research that's going on today. Does that point to the question of cultivation or give us some, t some tips on, I agree that it'd be good to be uh, more honest, uh, not to a fault, but, but more honest society. Uh, I I also remember that when I was like a kid, like up to about seven, I used to lie all the time. And then I decided that it was silly to lie all the time. And I think I've been a pretty honest since, I mean, kids lie a lot. So uh, just stupid <laughs> right, right, lies, right, right. stupid lies, they made no sense. Yeah. yeah. yeah but I, uh, so, you know, I, I had some moral moment of clarity in my, my seven-year-old brain saying that this was a silly. So, so how do we cultivate this, this virtue? What kind of things should we think about for ourselves to cultivate the virtue? Yeah, that's great. I've got three kids myself, so I know what you're talking about. Um, yeah, I'm dealing with the two. Uh, so there, there are several different strategies that could emerge at this point. We could focus on individual cultivation. What steps can I take as an individual? We could also talk about kind of um, institutional practices and cultural practices and societal practices. Let, let me um, start with the individual, at least, and, and depending on how much time we have, we can go further. So one thing that piggybacks exactly on what we were just talking about is the idea of moral reminders. Um, so what is the honor code doing? It's functioning as a moral reminder. Um, it's calling to mind something we already believe, but making a salient to consciousness, and then having it play a motivational role in uh, guiding our behavior. So the thought would be, let's have lots of more, uh, more reminders in our lives to keep us 
keep our perspective and our focus where it needs to be. Those could be every, anything from starting the day by reading a certain, you know, uh, positive reading, diarying at the end of the day, um, text messages and emails and so forth that come through th during the day, things on the wall, whatever you find is, is helpful there. Um, another strategy, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll stop after this one, is um, looking to people who have done better than us. Uh, of which, you know, there's always someone, uh, often many people, right? Um, so these are moral exemplars. These are moral role models. These are moral heroes. In the case of honesty, the, this, this kind of stock example is Abraham Lincoln, but it needn't be Lincoln. In fact, there's good research to say that the most effective role models, role models are those who are near and dear to us. Um, people who we know kind of on a personal basis who are regular parts of our lives and who are really crucially relatable to us, not up on a, up like a distant pedestal who almost seem unattainable to us, but we can relate to. And also in relating to them, see that they are further along that, that uh, path of uh, virtue where we talked at the very beginning about virtue coming in degrees. They're further along than we are so we can admire them, which fosters, can foster in us a desire to emulate them to be inspired by them, so to bring my character closer to their character as opposed to bringing their character down to my level. So those are two quick thoughts, reminders, and role models. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.